This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The horrific mass shootings in Uvalde, Texas, and Buffalo, New York, revealed that no one, whether elderly black people in a supermarket or 10-year-old Latino children at school, are safe from gun violence in America. While this is clearly a failure of our gun policies and of the misplaced faith in policing, it also indicates a deeper rot in American society. My guest Henry Giroux writes in Truthout, quote, what is ignored is a neoliberal economic system that feeds on self-interest, inequality, cruelty, punishment, precarity, and loneliness. Henry Giroux is the McMaster University Chair for Scholarship in the Public Interest in the English and Cultural Studies Department and is the Paulo Freire Distinguished Scholar in Critical Pedagogy. He's the author of several books, including American Nightmare, Facing the Challenge of Fascism. And his article in Truthout is called To End Mass Shootings, We Need to Change the Deeper Structure of Life in the U.S. Welcome to the program, Henry. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So let's uh, move past those issues that have consumed our news headlines, which is, of course, gun laws and gun reform and policing and its failures, and go to what you say is this neoliberal uh, economic system that has created the conditions for the situation we're in today. Is that, how do you draw the line between that and this epidemic of violence made all the more easier by easy availability of guns? Well, I, I, I don't think you draw a line. I think you ask how they're interconnected and whether or not we have a, a neoliberal economic system, what I call really a form of gangster capitalism that actually is saturated with violence and creates the conditions for violence. Uh, not only the kind of violence that's very obvious and sensational and, and breath stopping in terms of these mass shootings, but also the slow violence of everyday life, the massive poverty, uh, the inequality in wealth and power, the slow violence of people sort of trying to make a choice between uh, food and medicine, the kind of violence that puts people in meaningless jobs, the kind of violence that creates mass anxiety for students who are drowning in debt, the kind of violence that turns everybody into a private citizen arguing that there are no such things as uh, the social or systemic systemic problems. Um, a system that, that basically, and I'll end here, I mean, a system that has really cut itself off from any sense of social responsibility by arguing that all economic, and, uh, all economic activity and other forms of activity can be removed from social cause, that we don't have to factor in questions of ethics, questions of justice. Um, couple that one more time, I guess, with a system that trades in lies and mass ignorance, and you've got a recipe for, for what I call a form of domestic terrorism. One of the things that has come up is mental illness, but isn't mental illness and mental health issues? Well, first of all, let's set aside the fact that mentally uh, ill folks are often are more often the victims of violence than the perpetrators. But still, when we have an epidemic of mental health problems in the country, isn't that too? a symptom of this malaise, this economic system that has created so much inequality? No, no, absolutely. I, I mean, all of these things are symptomatic because they, in some way, you know, violence, as we know it, is both sim symbolic and material. And I think the symbolic forms of violence are those kinds of violence that attempt to legitimate 
violence as a, a form of political opportunism or as a form of entertainment or as uh, or uh, the way it spectacularizes violence in ways that lead people to believe it's both a source of pleasure and it, it's it's a it's a it's a part of everyday life that we have to accept regardless of the enormous consequences that it produces i mean you have a party in the united states a republican party that trades in violence i mean violence is its memo it's very clear whether we want to look at January 6th and the storming of the Capitol or whether we want to look at the extremism that's taken over the party and the language that it uses. I mean, this is a this is a party that claims that violence is a justifiable form of political opportunism. And in doing that, it creates a binary between friends and enemies. It was anybody who doesn't seem to be a white Christian evangelical. Uh, is considered, uh, you know, somebody who doesn't belong to the United States, somebody who is a threat to the United States, and somebody for whom those Americans who buy into this line should buy a gun in order to protect themselves. It seems as though the Republicans, when they are called upon to respond to these mass shootings, are you know, they, they try to say or claim that they care about the victims. For example, Trump during the NRA convention read the names of the victims of the Uvalde shooting, which I imagine for some of the parents must have been really hard to, to contend with. Um, but uh, so they want to show the sympathy. They tend to try to show this sympathy. But uh, then they go ahead and, for example, ban abortions and ban uh, access uh, or, 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 you know, don't fund schools adequately and blame teachers for all sorts of things. The inhumanity is at, is at such odds with the fake humanity that they try to show during mass shootings. How are their constituents not seeing through this? I, no, I think it's an important point. I mean, this is all part of a politics of diversion, uh, but it's actually more than that. It's an attempt to collapse the political into the personal by, by expressing sympathy for conditions that you literally create. Uh, it's not only disingenuous in the most profound political sense, it's also immoral and unethical. Um, it, it seems to me to say that we're going to pray for the victims or to produce such crazy generalizations as, you know, most people are evil. Uh, it doesn't really get at the heart or the roots of the problem. And they want to mask all of that by making a claim that they really care about young people, for instance, and are protecting them. Now, think about this. This goes on at the same time, as you point out, that they defund schools, they militarize schools, they put the police in schools, they undermine social provisions for young people, they do everything they can to make sure that wealth is concentrated in the hands of a financial elite, and they basically destroy the welfare state. At the same time, they're engaged in voter suppression, massive lying to the public. In other words, you have a party that's so corrupt. You have a party that is so degenerate. You have a party that is so fascistic. The only language that it has operates off two modalities. One is the language of hate. And the other is the false language of sympathy. And I think we have to begin to understand how one is a form of legitimation and the other is an adequate measure of what this Republican Party is about, which is a party of basically racial domestic terrorists. One of the things that you point out in your article is that under neoliberalism, democratic life has no vision 
and no meaningful ideological civic anchors. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, if we are living in a society where the accumulation of money and you know everyone in it for themselves, the cult of the individual is supreme, then that then one doesn't feel a responsibility to one's fellow humans, right? Which we saw during the pandemic, unfortunately. No, absolutely. I, I mean, look, you know, the, the Democratic Party is the party of Wall Street. The Democratic Party is the party of capitalism in, with a small C. Uh, it, it makes an attempt to claim that it's concerned about social issues, but the fact of the matter is, its vision is entirely wedded to a neoliberal set of understandings. And, and, and you've mentioned some of them already, that the market basically should be the template for uh, addressing all kinds of social problems for the entirety of society, that people are primarily consumers, that profit is more important than human need, that privatization, consumption, deregulation are really all that matter. So in a sense, I mean, what they, have, what they do is they reinforce a system that is so degenerate is so averse to addressing human needs, so insensitive to the violence that it produces, that they become part of the problem. They're just not as abrupt and upfront about that, except that they support policies that go nowhere, except reinforce neo neoliberal, uh, a, a, a form of neoliberal gangster, gangsterism. So it, it seems to me that what we're really talking about here is we're talking about a white supremacist party that has no qualms whatsoever about supporting a form of fascist politics and a democratic party that basically engages in legitimating a system without bragging about its own racist and economic fundamental and religious fundamentalisms uh, and reproduces the system. What we need is a socialist party. We need a third party. We need a way of recognizing that capitalism and democracy are not the same thing, that capitalism in its current stage is basically going to destroy the planet, produce massive degrees of violence at every level, and it has to be changed. One of the things, Henry, that has been really plaguing me, and I'm sure you and, and Americans of conscience, is this deep sense that we are letting our children down. I mean, not just leaving them to the mercies of mass killers and shooters, but erasing their future with climate change, ensuring they have few job prospects or economic uh, prospects because of student debt and you know wages remaining low. And they're on their own and they are rising up on their own but they're doing it in spite of us not with our help and i'm wondering how you think about those issues the fact that our generation you know has let our own children down over and over again it's very hard for parents to to think about what we're doing or not doing for our children no i think it's a very insightful commentary i mean if you want to measure any the level of democracy and social justice in any society, look at the way in which it treats its children. And I think that since the 1980s in particular, uh, and, and coupled with the, with the beginning of the neoliberal, neoliberal revolution and steroids, coupled with the counter revolution against the 1960s, I mean, I think it's fair to say that, you know, young people are no longer considered a viable investment because they're a long-term investment. That means that they need to have resources placed at their disposal that guarantees that they not only have some sense of agency and social justice, but can, in a, in a way, uh, exist in a present that promises a more productive future. So uh, as a long-term investment in a country that only believes in short-term investments, their reliability. 
Secondly, it seems to me, we have to now break down something here. And I, it's what I call the war on youth. Young people have been written out of the script of democracy in a very fundamental way, in really three ways. One, most, almost all young people are now defined almost exclusively as consumers. And so the notion that the only obligation of citizenship is a form of commodification or consuming is really a symbolic act of violence that undermines their own sense of agency. Secondly, when you, took, when you look at young people of color, now we're talking about something quite different because it, it seems to me that they've become the object of the punishing state. Their behaviors are criminalized. We have zero tolerance policies that push them out of schools. We have a health system as we saw during the pandemic that basically is enormously discriminatory against young people of color and their parents uh, and, and, and families in, in general. And thirdly, we have a generation that's under massive surveillance. And fourthly, we have a generation that's utterly distracted in many ways by a social media that really believes that uh, you know, they can trade in white supremacist values, they can be entertained to be stupid. And fifthly, we have a, a party that is destroying all the institutions that would enable them to be critically informed to become productive agents. In other words, we have a massive system that combines two things, an attempt to depoliticize them and an attempt to punish them and to remove any sense of collective agency from them. The good news, as you've suggested, is in spite of all of this, I mean, they're more tolerant than their elders. They're rising up and marching for gun safety, climate action, and other important causes. And they really represent one of the few forces that I see at work around the world that is really fighting for a different kind of future. They're both oppressed and they're refusing to accept that oppression. And I, and I think that uh, this augurs well for the future, where it will go if they organize, if they can bring the different issues together that they believe in and create a mass movement, there's hope. If they can't, uh, I'm less uh, optimistic. And then the broader issue of democracy in America is also at stake, right? We are essentially in a minority rule right now. Um, the Republicans have successfully uh, rigged the system to ensure that they represent, uh, you know, they have a majority representation in government, even as the numbers of their constituents are dwindling and they've you know, with the hold on the Supreme Court, gerrymandering, the Senate being undemocratic. They've created a system and they may very well win more political power this November. They've created a system where we are going to have minority rule. And even if people of color become the majority or, you know, there are pluralities um, and whites become a minority in this country, then uh, we, we still have a white domination and white supremacist domination in government. That needs to be broken, right? Oh, that's, that's essential. I, I mean, look, uh, let's go back. I mean, there are two things here that you're hinting at very eloquently, and, and that is democracy and capitalism are not the same thing. I'm sorry. And as a matter of fact, capitalism in its current stage has indicated by the way that was in which the Republican Party is gerrymandering, voter, exercising voter suppression, packing the Supreme Court, the institutions that allegedly uh, by default will protect the United States from becoming a fascist state have, have failed. They, they failed because they're susceptible to the power of money, influence, and concentrated wealth. Secondly, it seems to me, if you really wanna understand something about the, the death of civic culture, in, this, in the United States, the death of public goods, the death of institutions that basically nourish and create the conditions for informed, critically engaged citizens. 
look at the model the Republican Party is now putting before the American people as a model of, of the future. It exists in Hungary and it exists in Florida. I mean, these are people who are basically are celebrating Orban, who is nothing more than an upgraded fascist dictator who has suppressed dissent, who revels in what he calls a liberal democracy, claims that liberalism in any form has failed, and, and basically is, is, is celebrating a form of authoritarianism that says democracy is worthless, it doesn't work. So if you really want to understand, as you're suggesting, what the Republican Party believes in, just look at the way in which they're marching to Hungary. Look at the way in which they're celebrating Orban. Look at the way in which they're adopting his tactics in Florida. I mean, it, it seems to me that if you really want to see the future of, of this country, God forbid, if it happens, look to DeSantis. DeSantis is the model, more so even than Abbott, with his war on transgender youth, his elimination of tenure from, from the universities, his attack on intellectuals, his, his support for neoliberal neo-Nazi policies, apologizing for Nazis who appear in streets with signs, uh, his, hard, his hardening of schools, his celebration of violence as a form of political opportunism, very dangerous. Henry, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. We'll post a link to your article from our website and uh, we'll share it with our audience. Thank you so much as always. Oh, my pleasure. Okay. My guest is Henry Giroux McMaster, University Chair for Scholarship in the Public Interest in the English and Cultural Studies Department and the Paulo Freire Distinguished Scholar in Critical Pedagogy. He's the author of several books, including American Nightmare, Facing the Challenge of Fascism. And we've been discussing his latest article in Truth Out called To End Mass Shootings, We Need to Change the Deeper Structure of Life in the U.S. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.